So Matt, it's just us this week. Oh my goodness. No Rue. I feel like you've had a holiday. <laughs> Rue's had a holiday. Where's mine? Where's my where's my time off? He's off swanning around in Disneyland somewhere. So that doesn't sound like a holiday to me, if I'm honest. That sounds like pure stress. But yeah, like, uh, I, I don't know. I need a bit of a break. I think it's it's nearly Easter. It's Easter weekend this weekend. And I yeah. think we're going to go to the beach and a uh, nice early morning walk on the beach. I'm quite looking forward to. Bit of classic fish and chips, maybe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we got told that the barbecue was uh, available as well. But I was just like, yeah, I don't think you can go to the seaside and not have fish and chips. So no. this fish and chip shop as well doesn't do sauces. That puts it down quite far on my list of best chip shops uh, because... <laughs> curry sauce standard. You need a curry sauce or you need... Gravy. Uh, or you need a gravy. The worst bit is when the chip shop gets confused and you get kind of a mid point between those two. Just a brown sludge. Yeah, that's not great. But I mean, I, I could settle with some dousing it in vinegar. I think I have probably a centimetre of, of vinegar on the bottom just remaining after I've eaten all my chips. <laughs> They need to be crispy enough that they're not soggy by the end. That's that's my that's my level. Is this the most British conversation we've ever had, Matt? I don't know, but I'm really hungry. It's 10 to 12 <laughs> and we've now started talking about fish and chips. I, this, this is downhill from here. We're just a cliche. This better be the fastest podcast ever because my <laughs> stomach is already rumbling. Something I did want to talk about on the podcast was a tweet that we put out at one password which i really enjoyed and i liked a lot of the answers to because we asked people to replace a movie title with password and we went first and we said raiders of the lost password and i wondered if you had any uh, suggestions for this matt any takes on this tweet i mean harry password <laughs> harry password <laughs> harry sounds password. like a brilliant movie <laughs> very inventive <laughs> i know <laughs> Harry Password and the Chamber of Secrets. Oh, it just, it writes itself. Okay, that one worked. Okay, I'll give you that. I came up with a few. Do you want, do you want to hear mine? Go on, go for it. So, first one, call me by your password. Right. Okay, I like it. Second one, a password is born. Right. Next one, we need to talk about passwords. And the last one was the perks of being a password. Oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, what about modern films that are like look, films that have just come out? The Lost Password. Oh yeah, for the Lost City, or just the Password, uh, replacing, of course, Batman, with the latest <laughs> Batman movie. Uh, that, that one, that one doesn't seem as adventurous. Uh, the worst password in the world. The worst password in the world. That's a good one. Fantastic passwords. The secrets of Dumbledore. <laughs> Are you just going through Letterboxd as well, looking at the popular this week? <laughs> <laughs> I I absolutely am. I think that's a great one. I'm so glad that we've pushed outside our normal practice of how we use social media in order to, to push some of these things, because I, I think they're quite fun. They are. I do enjoy them. We had lots of good suggestions. I think there was a dude, where's my password? I quite like that one. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah, that's pretty good. We could just do this all day. We should probably uh, move on to Watchtower Weekly. We should. I can't help but thinking there's, there's, there's at least one more <laughs> good one that we haven't seen. It'll come to you by the end of the show. All right. Okay, so let's jump into Watchtower Weekly. 
two teenagers have been charged uh, in relation to the Lapsus Hacking Group investigation. So Lapsus Hacking Group, they've been on quite the spree lately and the City of London Police have charged two teenagers in relation to the ongoing investigation into the Lapsus Hacking Group. So the teenagers were aged 16 and 17 and have been charged with three accounts of unauthorized access to a computer with intent to impair the reliability of data. One count of fraud by false representation and one count of unauthorized access to a computer with intent to hinder access to data. I mean, the charges are wordy. The 16-year-old has also been charged with one count of causing a computer to perform a function to secure unauthorized access to a program. So that's probably encrypting stuff without the consent of the person who owns the stuff. And British police have announced that they have arrested seven people between the ages of 16 to 21 in relation to their investigation into the Lapsus group, which has stolen leaked data from... I mean, the likes of like Microsoft, NVIDIA, Ubisoft, Samsung, Okta, all, all of these ones, right? The 16-year-old, who has not been named, obviously, for legal reasons, 16, <laughs> uh, is alleged to amassed $14 million of the fortune Ooh. from hacking. His online moniker was White or Breach Base. The teenager is said to be behind the prolific Lapsus hacking crew, which is believed to be based in South America. The boy's father, this is this is the best bit of any article that's been out, <laughs> because the, the boy's father, first of all, I read this in my uh, in my head in, in like a completely northern voice, because it's just a really nice father who obviously like hasn't noticed any of the things that's been going on with his 16 year old son. <laughs> it's just I've never heard anything about any of this until recently. He's never talked about any hacking, but he is very good on computers and spends a lot of time on the computer. I always thought he was playing games. We're going to try and stop him from going on computers. <laughs> oh, Am I the only one who's disappointed that you didn't do that in a northern accent? Do you, do you want me to? Yeah, give it a go. I've never heard anything about this until recently. He's never talked about any hacking, but he is very good on computers and spends a lot of time on the computer. I always thought that he was playing games. We're going to have to try and stop him from going on computers. <laughs> on computers? Yeah. There we go. That's, that's my offensive voiceover <laughs> for the day. Apologies to all who this affected. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Just the, the thing I liked about that is like it changed all over the place from where in the north it was based. <laughs> and of course, slightly Geordie. And then this person isn't even northern. Like they, they were they were arrested in London. So there we go. So White, as he's known, was outed on a hacker website after apparently falling out with his business partners. So the hackers revealed his name, address and social media pictures. Uh, they also posted a biography of his hacking career saying, after a few years, his net worth accumulated to well over 300 bitcoins. He is now affiliated with a wannabe ransomware group known as Lapsus, who has been extorting and hacking several organizations. Cybersecurity researchers have been tracking him for nearly a year. Alison Nixon, the chief research officer at cybersecurity investigation company Unit 221B. 221? <laughs> uh, this is, uh, I, I know we rarely rate company names, um, but I feel like, <laughs> I, I like this, it's pretty good, but I do want, like, I want to know whether it's 221B, which is like a mouthful. Or whether it's like twenty two one B. This just reminds me of the um, Sherlock Holmes board game. I was thinking so. Yeah, it sounds a bit like Sherlock Holmes. 
Uh, so they say that researchers tracked him through a trail of activity linked through a nearly unbroken stream of the boy's online accounts. We did it by watching the post history of an account and seeing older posts provide contact information. That's what Nixon said. I mean, this is criminal mastermind, but also being 16 at the same time is pretty terrifying. I know. What were you doing when you were 16, Matt? Like, I think I was just playing Endless Hours of the Sims and messaging my friends on MSN about boys, most likely. I was not involved in uh, an international hacking group. I was going to say The Sims was pretty big when I was 16, yeah. You know, the thing is, though, I did recognise that this type of stuff was illegal, I feel like, at that age. Yes. I did understand what things were right and what things were wrong, and I feel like this person did not. No. They probably got brought into the culture and a group of friends and all that kind of stuff, and... Yeah, I feel like there's probably a bit of extortion that he did, but he was probably extorted a bit as well. Yeah, being taken advantage of. Yeah, I think the punishment is going to be pretty pretty severe, but obviously they they can't do much because he is 16. Mm. But I, I do feel like this kid is never touching a computer, for, <laughs> or at least not for a long time, right? I mean, his, his dad's not going to let him, let's face it. I mean, yeah. Imposed by dad, but also likely imposed by police. <laughs> yes. Okay, so uh, Apple and Facebook have reportedly provided personal user data to hackers who are posing as law enforcement. So this one's reported by 9to5Mac. And in mid-2021, Apple provided customer data to hackers after they masqueraded themselves as law enforcement officials. This is a report by Bloomberg. According to people familiar with the matter, the company provided basic subscriber details due to forged emergency data requests. So the publication explains that normally such requests are only provided with a search warrant or subpoena signed by a judge. However, such emergency requests don't require a court order. So alongside Apple, Meta, which is Facebook's parent company, also gave hackers user data. And according to Bloomberg, hackers affiliated with a cybercrime group known as the Recursion Team. Oh, that's a, that's a pretty good name, actually. <laughs> I like that. Obviously not what they do, but they have branded themselves well there. So they are believed to be behind some of uh, the forged legal requests. So some of the hackers could be minors located in the UK and US. What What is it with the British teenage population at the moment? <laughs> could, we, could we just stop hacking stuff? We're all too bored, apparently. Apparently, yeah. So in addition, one of them could be the mastermind behind the cybercrime gang that hacked Microsoft, Samsung and NVIDIA. Hang on, is this the same kid? Well, it's Lapsus. Oh my goodness. Strikes again. This could be the same 16-year-old. <laughs> honestly. So Alison Nixon again uh, comes in defense of Apple's and Facebook teams that have handled the law enforcement. And she says, in every instance where these companies messed up, at the core of it, there was a person trying to do the right thing. Uh, I can't tell you how many times trust and safety teams have quietly saved lives because employees have had the legal flexibility to rapidly respond to a tragic situation unfolding for a user. I think that really nicely surmises why these law enforcement things happen. Obviously, the, the privacy side of this is quite terrifying as well. Yeah, It's always a balance, and I feel like they just probably need a few barriers in between. But like the quote literally goes on to say, every one of these barriers is, is an inflexibility that 
means that things take time in large companies and that can honestly hurt the end outcome. So it's always a balance, but this is not a great precedent to happen. Yeah, I think it's just frightening for the sheer volume of personal information that Apple and Facebook must have access to, which in the hands of law enforcement, pretty scary. And in this case, Mm. not even law enforcement at all. Someone masquerading as law enforcement. Right. So hackers breach MailChimp's internal tools to target crypto customers. So this is from Bleeping Computer. So email marketing firm MailChimp recently disclosed that they had been hit by hackers who gained access to internal customer support and account management tools to steal audience data and conduct phishing attacks. So Twitter blew up with the owners of Trezor Hardware cryptocurrency wallets who received phishing notifications claiming that the company suffered a data breach. So these emails prompted Trezor customers to reset their hardware wallet pins by downloading malicious software that allowed stealing the stored cryptocurrency. Whoa, this is, yeah, bad. So Trezor later shared that MailChimp had been compromised by threat actors targeting the cryptocurrency industry who conducted then the the phishing attack, right? MailChimp has confirmed that the breach was more significant than just Trezor's account being accessed by threat actors. And according to, to MailChimp, some of their employees fell for a social engineering attack that led to this theft of their credentials. So they say, on March 26th, our security team became aware of a malicious actor accessing one of our internal tools used by customer-facing teams for customer support and account administration. This was from their their CISO, Siobhan Smith. The incident was propagated by an external actor who conducted a successful social engineering attack on MailChimp employees, resulting in the compromised credentials. So we acted swiftly to address this situation by terminating access for the compromised employee accounts and took several steps to prevent additional employees from being affected. These credentials were used to access 319 MailChimp accounts and to export audience data, likely mailing lists, from 102 customer accounts. So in addition to viewing accounts and exporting data, the threat actors gained access to API keys for an undisclosed number of customers, which have now been disabled. So using these compromised API keys, a threat actor can create custom email campaigns, such as phishing campaigns, and send them to mailing lists without accessing MailChimp's customer portal. So MailChimp says that they've received reports of this access being used to conduct phishing campaigns against the stolen contacts. So MailChimp recommends that all customers enable two-factor authentication on their accounts for further protection. So they say, we sincerely apologize to our users for this incident and realize that it brings inconvenience and raises questions for our users and their customers. We take pride in our security culture and infrastructure and the trust that customers place in us to safeguard their data. We're confident in the security measures and robust procedures we have in place to protect our users' data and prevent future incidents. That was from MailChimp CISO. I mean, this is a terrifying one. Like, I think the social engineering aspect is quite terrifying. Yeah, I was, I was going to say there's, there's a couple of angles here which are kind of terrifying. So first is the, the social engineering to gain access to customer service tools and, and data, which we've seen quite a few times recently, right? Like mm. there have been a few that, that we've spoken about. That's kind of terrifying in itself. The fact that they then accessed all of this audience data So not only do they have huge lists of email addresses, they have what that person 
signed up for that's kind of terrifying in itself you know it makes phishing emails so much more effective when you know you're a treesaw customer and they email you about treesaw and then the other element of this is the api keys yeah and so they can do all of this without accessing the thing that they've just cut off access to yeah i mean if i was a, a mailchimp customer i would go a little bit further than than they are saying and and i would regenerate all my api keys and put them in the right places again right like yeah this is a big hit to them i think i guess it just shows how vital kind of employee education is around security because there's no kind of magic bullet for social engineering attacks is it it's not like oh we'll just well 2fa isn't a magic bullet anyway but it's not just like oh we'll enable 2fa and things will be okay you have to actually educate your employees yeah and i think the the interesting where I don't think they've gone far enough in their response to this is it doesn't seem like they've enabled two-factor by default. They have recommended that all customers enable two-factor authentication. Mm. They could turn it on by default, but they haven't. Yeah. So I just I don't think that's quite gone far enough. So, Anna, what's up this week? It seems like... We've got like a million guests and like over the years, we found that, you know, our listeners love hearing these security and tips and tricks that, that these guests have had. So we thought we would kind of collate all the best of our guests from past episodes to bring you all the best advice in one neat little package. So I kind of see this as we're nearing the end of our series. This is the kind of series recap that, that we need. Mm, the best of the guests, as you will. I like it. Yeah. I, I do think in the length of the interviews sometimes, there are so many tips and, and interesting little snippets that you don't always, you know, kind of remember them by the end of the episode. I certainly don't. So I think let's let our guests take it away. You know, we've talked a lot about different tips and stuff for people uh, throughout the interview. Do you have any that we haven't touched on yet? Anything that people should really know if they're trying to stay safe online? I think the first thing, I hope it doesn't sound like a cop-out, but the first thing is just think about privacy, right? Just think about it at all. You don't have to get obsessed. You don't have to, you don't have to delete all your accounts. You don't have to switch to burner phones and like stop communicating <laughs> with your family because they're only on Facebook. You don't have to be a, a reactionary like that. Just think about like when you're typing something into a website, why are you telling this website that? And if the answer is, it is the only way to conduct this business I must conduct, great, carry on. And sometimes you're going to say, I don't actually know why they need my zip code. And, and it's okay, right? It's, it's okay that you don't know. You thought about it. Like just having the idea of, I have privacy. This is a priority in my life. It is a need that I need to feel good about my life. I will think about it as I go through my day. Just a casual thing that's important to you. The other, if we want to talk about email is, your email address is your identity. It's the way online services tend to know who you are. And so you should think about how many identities do you need? I think most people need more than one. If you don't have one for work and one for your personal life, you need to fix that because that's just a work-life balance question. But even in your personal life, you probably have more contexts than one that you deal in. And separating these identities Beyond just privacy, which it's a big deal for, separating these identities can help you lead a, a life in which you've sort of compartmentalized your concerns intentionally and have a way to think about how you're dealing with the, the aspects of your life. 
I do think a password manager is important. I do think something I mention a lot on the stream, especially for maybe other generations, it was normal to answer your phone all the time. And it was normal to put your information in a phone book. But I think today you need to be way more careful about where you put your information, what information you share. And when you get a phone call, that's a number you don't recognize. I highly recommend not answering it. Like if it's, if it's really important, maybe they'll leave a voicemail for you. Uh, the second thing I say a lot is don't be afraid to hang up on people because if it, if it really is a, a dire legal situation, even then, right? I think we would all agree you still have time and there's really never going to be a situation where the government or someone needs you to right now pay all of this money or you're going to go to prison for 20 years or something. There's a, there's legal systems in place for this. You, you can talk to lawyers, all, but scammers work off of trying to get you to do something immediately and not thinking about it. So I try to encourage, don't answer your phone as often as you might think and don't be afraid to hang up and think about it. So, Tanya, do you have any favorite tips for all of our coders, software developer listeners out there when it comes to building software? Okay. I have the number one best ever tip on the planet. Holy cow. All right. Yes. I'm listening. I know, right? And it seems so simple and obvious, but I did not think of it for years. So when you don't know how to do a thing and you are going to go on the internet and use your favorite search engine to find how to do it, Look for the most secure way to do that thing. Do not ever pick the top option on Stack Overflow because I love Stack Overflow. It's literally, it's my favorite programming language. However, when you vote something up to the top, quite often is because they have removed all of the security features in order to ensure it works. And so Stack Overflow found this out very quickly. They're smart people. And so they made a secure security section there. So either look up there how to do the thing you're doing or search the most secure way to do that thing. Because when you copy and paste stuff off of the internet, you copy and paste code, usually as a dev, you're like, oh, what's it do? Looks pretty good. And then you press the compile button. It compiles. You're like, off to the races. Let's go. <laughs> Next. Yes. If you made security a part of that, if you said, I'm going to look for the most secure way to do the thing I want to do, I kid you not, it would make huge code improvements immediately. And it takes two minutes <laughs> instead of 30 seconds. That's fascinating. I've never thought about that before. That is a really fascinating way to think about it. Like just not how do I get this done, but what's the most secure way to get this? Jeez Louise. So how do you think people can better secure themselves, especially in this new age of working from home? Yeah, well, I think right now is a good time to really sit back and, and look at your IT, your own personal IT at home. Because I think the first couple of months, everyone was a bit worried, like, whoa, what's just happened? A whirlwind. They've gone home. The IT people have said, uh, right, have you got a computer at home? Yeah, I've got a dusty old Windows 7 laptop. I might better get it out of the loft. Use it. You know, that's what they were saying. And they weren't saying, have you checked? You've got antivirus on there. They weren't checking about passwords. Is your router secure? Those kind of questions weren't even thought about in the first couple of months. But now the dust seems to have settled. I think we really should be helping businesses think about their IT and their infrastructure in each home. They've now got not just one office to think about. They've got 
hundreds, maybe even thousands of offices to look after, right away from router to is their computer encrypted? If they're leaving their door open at night and someone wants to come in and take that laptop, you know, people aren't leaving them on trains anymore because they're not going on trains very much. But if you leave it in the garden because it's been so nice and you're working out there and someone sees it walking along the street and goes, I'll have that computer, it's not encrypted. Those simple little things, that's the danger. There are companies out there that are obviously supplying work laptops, brilliant, and they'll be equipped with the VPNs and full disk encryption, an absolute baseline must. But then they're not really helping you out with passwords and password managers. I love seeing password managers given out to companies and told that this is how we're going to work from now on. Most of those people then take them into their own personal life and then realize this is the way forward. I don't even make up a password. I can just go down 20 characters plus and it remember it for me. They're all unique. That's the way to go about it. So right now, maybe it is a good time to bring in online training. We just did some newer online training with ESET. And I must admit, I looked at it and went, oh God, here we go. Because that was my first impression, like most people. I didn't want to say that to myself, but I did. <laughs> and then I did it. And I went, oh my God. Well, it said, this series will take you 45 minutes. I went, 45 minutes? But I really enjoyed it. It had been done really well. And at the end of it, I was able to, to think this was something that could be used massively with other companies. And it just refreshes you because you, you don't have the chance of chatting to someone at the water cooler or in the kitchen and say, you know, I think I got a phishing email this morning. Uh, you miss out on all that. You don't say that in your Zoom calls with your meeting, but you do say it when you just pass someone and go, this was a dodgy one. Or you don't walk past the IT department and say, oh, I've got a little something that I'd love you to help me with. You don't want to pick up the phone and say, this tiny little thing, can I have help with? And then the conversation blossoms and you start talking about other things to stay safe. So it's about education, like I say, but it's also about just chatting around it. It doesn't have to be too formal, although it can be very impressive when it is. But just discussing it and making people aware that newer things are coming out. There'll be people out there that go, oh, I've not heard of 2FA. Can you tell me about it? And that kind of thing ripples through a company perfectly because it's their peers they tend to listen to more than other people. So are there any payment security tips that you can give to our listeners like what are what are some of like the the hard and fast rules for you know for instance within in the in the password management game it's always use a use a strong unique password for every website right are there do you guys have a comparable one sort of in the financial circles yeah i guess in general it's just um stay cautious the reality of the situation is unless unless you're really technical you may well fall for certain scams and phishing websites but just stay on guard for it uh, if you're unsure ask someone and also just be skeptical. Like if someone's asking you for your banking pin, is that something you should ever be giving out? If you received a text message, it's just be skeptical. Uh, it's just kind of a, a healthy level of paranoia, I guess. Um, but, but don't take it too far. Like ultimately fraud does and will happen and your bank should be there to, to protect you if, if it does happen to you. Do you think there are other kind of bad habits that we fall into that perhaps, you know. So the obvious one is password choices. This is the one we're talking about. It leads to many compromises by hackers. There's no getting away from that. People choose weak passwords. What is the barrier, right? The barrier is the difficulty of remembering them. We have too many. We can't possibly, the human brain is designed to remember between five and six nonsense strings. 
And then you get people making you change passwords all the time as well. So you can't remember them. So people cope by choosing weak passwords. So you, you can't target the behavior instead till you understand what's causing the behavior. You can give people a strategy, right? So humans have a memory bump in their lives which is around, starts at around 12, 13, and then it goes to 26, 27. There are things in that part of your life that you will never forget. And luckily for us, many of the things that, like our addresses, our telephone numbers and things, are not on any database because the database has only started later. So I personally use the telephone number that I had when I was 12 to get into my phone. There probably isn't anyone else on this planet who knows that telephone number. But people, even if you speak to people in their 70s or 80s, they can tell you what address they lived at when they were 15. So they can use those. They're never going to forget them, but nobody else will know those. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so wrapping stuff up, like what's your kind of favorite elevator pitch for password managers? Uh What are your things that you always recommend and, and talk about in general? Well, if I were going to convince somebody in an elevator to use a password manager, I would say simply, you don't try to remember all your phone numbers. So it makes no sense to try to remember all your passwords. Your brain is not designed for this. Use the tools that are there to do this for you. Not just any password manager. Find one that convinces you that they will store your passwords securely. Then give it a try. You will never look back. That's what I would say in an elevator. Ken, I kind of want to wrap up with the way that we actually end most of these interviews with experts like yourself. And it's what's the best piece of security advice that you usually give someone? What do you tell people that are looking to keep themselves safe online? So if it's IoT, I think that there are three things. Now, when you sign up for an IoT device, you're going to need to create a password. And I don't know if I can stress enough how important it is to use a long, complex, hopefully randomly generated password. That is critical. The easiest way to hack IoT is because people use the same password they used everywhere else. So that's one. Use a password manager, please. That's absolutely critical. The next one is keep an eye out for updates. Now, not just your IoT product. Keep your updates on the systems you're running. So on the mobile phone, the smartphone you're using, keep it updated. And then look for updates for the smart product itself. Now, typically the way they're pushed to the product is they'll probably be downloaded to your phone and then you push them to the smart device. But that process isn't always automatic. So keep an eye out for updates to your smartphone app because they often include updates to your smart product as well. So just keep everything up to date, fix your passwords, and you'll be in a much better place. Now, that won't stop IoT hacks, but it'll make it a lot harder. I just want to remind people, privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. You cannot have free and democratic societies without a solid foundation of privacy. So the next time someone says to you, you know, well, why should I care about my privacy? You say, if you care about freedom, which we fortunately can take largely for granted right now, then you care about privacy. We need to ensure that privacy is respected. And again, privacy is not about secrecy. It's about control, personal control over the uses of your information. I always tell people, privacy is not a religion. You want to give away your information? Be my guest, as long as you make the decision to do that, not someone else on your behalf. So let's make sure that we can preserve privacy now and well into the future. Let's focus in a little bit on password habits. Like, what do you think are some of the best ways to improve password habits? So the, the first one is, you know, we, we know that people are terrible at choosing passwords. Right? And, and we're sort of at the point where pretty much anything you can remember can be hacked. So we want people to choose unmemorable passwords. So I, I recommend a password manager. 
there is a system for choosing passwords you can't break that you can remember. And basically, I tell people to craft a sentence and use the sentence as a way to generate the password. So, right, the first letter of every of every word, and then you know, with some number letter substitutions or extra punctuation or weird capitalization, you sort of remember the sentence, and it's something memorable from your life that's personal. Mm-hmm. So I suggest a sentence you'd be embarrassed to write down because <laughs> right. they are easier to remember, and you're less likely to write it down. Yeah. And then you remember the production rule of how to turn that sentence into into the password, and then use that for the very high value passwords, the the password for your password manager. And uh, you turn on two-factor whenever you can, and it matters. Indeed. Duo or uh, Google's two-factor, right? You know, for anything where there's money involved, where there's your reputation involved, where there's personal information involved, you want to turn those features on. So that's sort of my advice to individuals. Understand risk and consequences. I've learned that very, very well in industrial control systems because process operators are very good at knowing that. They, they know what their worst day ever is. And then, then it's very easy to map down risk and then crown jewels and then points to monitor, points to hunt in from that. If you understand what your business cares about and what a negative consequence to what they care about would actually be, it becomes much simpler to understand where you need to do your monitoring, where you need to do your hunting, where you need to put your detection, uh, where you need to add layers of defense and depth. And we're very, very bad at that in cybersecurity on the IT side of things, because when somebody tells us to go hunt in a network, look for the bad people, we just start looking for random things like, oh, I wonder if they're exfiltrating data over DNS tunneling. You just start looking for random adversary TTPs. What you should really be doing is thinking about what would actually negatively impact your business and your operations and your employees, the things that you care about, and look for those things. Look for the ways that adversaries would cause those bad things to happen, either intentionally or or unintentionally. And we just don't have a good grasp on that in IT cybersecurity. One thing that isn't talked about as much is our data security and our our data privacy as well, which I think is really another area of cybersecurity that we all have to be familiar with because our data is really the crown jewels of everything that we do. And someone that can access our data or even modify our data has an advantage over us. So I want to recommend that our listeners are as careful with their data as they are with their passwords and with their systems in general. So that means, for instance, keeping data at rest encrypted with strong passwords, making sure that you're protecting your data when it's on cloud-based storage and making sure that it's not openly or publicly available, and also making sure that you are able to understand if your data has been manipulated without your knowledge. For instance, using hash checks and other types of mechanisms that will detect a change within your data sets. So these are areas that we have to be more proactive about and more vigilant to because more and more our data is going to be attacked in ways that really are going to be quite astonishing to see. And bridging on that, we've seen supply chain attacks 
for instance, of our software supply chain, where we've seen the attacks on our networks and our devices based early on the supply chain of software that has wormed its way through many systems and got the biggest of vendors and governments. So we really need to be more careful about our, our data sets and, again, to not trust the system that they're on, understand that maybe every system out there is compromised, and thus, how do we make sure that our data remains safe? What are my tips on how you can protect and take control of your data? Well, understand, first of all, it's not just about the data. So everything that you use, the hardware, the software, the services, these all play into that equation. I think first and foremost, it's also important to have some sort of idea of your threat model. So, you know, are you a government whistleblower and do you possibly have the U.S. government tracking you down? If you are being targeted directly by a military of a major government, then you're probably screwed to some degree, right? This is not everyone's threat model. There are whole organizations devoted to protecting people who are the target of governments, but you're probably not. So your biggest threat is probably from corporations, corporations like Google, corporations like Facebook, etc. There are several things you can do. The easiest, which, you know, you hear people throw about as if it's so easy to do, just don't use them. Just don't use Facebook. <laughs> oh, sure. And uh, how do you propose I keep up with my child's school because they're on Facebook? Well, I think that's when we come to what you can actually do. Maybe talk to your school. You know, maybe talk to your child's school and say, hey, maybe you shouldn't be on Facebook. Maybe there are alternatives that we can use, like maybe Nextcloud. Or maybe talk to your school and say, I heard that we were going to get Chromebooks. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to normalize surveillance in our schools. Why don't you look at something like, I don't know, Pine64? They have laptops that are completely free and open, hugely usable, hugely hackable for learning about technology on. They're actually cheaper than Chromebooks. And why don't we look at that? So I think it's those sort of things where you can have a real impact, where you show the institutions around you, the people around you in your local community, that this does really matter for you, that this is important, that you talk to them about these things, about the ramifications. If we don't resist these surveillance devices and the proliferation of them, I would say get involved politically if you can. You know, even at the very local level or higher, this is not just a technological problem. This is not something that no matter how many lines of code I write or anyone else writes, we're not going to solve it just by writing lines of code, right? I mean, take the best case scenario with what I'm building with the small web. Let's say it's successful. Let's say it's really successful. Governments right now all around the world are trying to backdoor end-to-end -end encryption, and hey, I'm building a system that lets you talk privately to people with end-to-end -end encryption. I'm not going to backdoor it. So what happens if it becomes successful? I might have a knock on the door and they say, well, here's what we want you to do. What happens if I say no? Then I probably go to jail at that point. This is what I told the members of parliament at the European Parliament when I spoke there. Yulia Reda of the Pirate Party asked me, what do you want from us? And all I said to her was, I just want you to do your job so in five years' time, you know, those of us who are building these alternatives are not behind bars. So that comes down to legislation. Get involved politically. Affect legislation. Just talk to people about this. Personally, 
If you want to protect yourself, look at alternatives and stop gaps that are out there. I wish I could say instead of X company, go to Y company, because that would be the easy answer within the system we live in, right? There is no easy answer. Support those who are working for alternatives. And that's it, really. I mean, it's, it, there's no easy. I wish there was an easier answer. I wish I didn't have to ramble on for minutes to try and, and tackle this. <laughs> but there isn't. But also, at the same time, everything you do matters, Everything you do and everything you don't do matters. So don't think it's too small. Don't think it won't have an effect because it does. So Matt, it's time for your favourite part of the show. It's Ridiculous Requirements. I am actually learning slightly to dislike this game. I'm glad we're nearly changing it. I think what this is, we've got what, two left, three left. But like my excitement for the next game that we have planned has kind of <laughs> tarnished this. this one. Yeah, it's it's tarnished this game a little bit. You've got to live in the moment, Matt. Be present. Be mindful. I do not live in the moment whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> You're two steps ahead. Always. Uh, okay, so here we go. So, yeah, welcome to Ridiculous Requirements, the game where we work together to come up with passwords that are not advised that fit the honestly terrible requirements. And this is the penultimate round and we're going video game themed this week. Oh dear. Okay. <laughs> Do you need Rue for this one? There are games that I've played and there are games that I haven't. And this is largely, I feel, going to involve games that I haven't played. Okay, so let's let's read the requirements. So the requirements are, it must contain the name of Geralt's horse in The Witcher. It must contain the name of the rebel group in The Last of Us. It must contain the final word in the name of the 2002 Spyro game. It must contain the name of a turn-based artillery game involving projectile weapons that was first released in 1995. And it must contain the term given to a glitch in a video game. And finally, all passwords must refer to an insect. Oh dear. Okay. <laughs> oh, what was Geralt's horse named? Bug? Fly. It was something like that, right? I mean, it's got to refer to an insect, but it wasn't bug or fly. Oh, it was roach. Okay. It right. was roach, yeah. Okay, I remember that one now. Okay, right. <laughs> it must contain the name of the rebel group in The Last of Us that is referring to an insect. That would be the Fireflies. I've played that game yeah. a ridiculous amount. Must contain the final so word good. in the name of 2002's Spyro game. I don't know what Spyro is or was, so I have <gasps> no insight into this at all. You're going to have to answer that one or I'm going to have to Google it. I'm upset that you've never played a Spyro game. Is, is it new? <laughs> I, I'm only just playing... What am I playing now? Is it new? I'm playing Ratchet and Clank. I thought that came out like 20 years ago, but it turns out that uh, came out. You realise the same people made Spyro, right? Uh, I didn't. They just look quite similar in, in feel. Spyro was a little dragon? He was little dragon, yeah. Okay. Spyro the last dragon. The last... Uh, oh, it's got to be an insect. Fly? Uh, it's got fly in it. Uh, blue bottle fly? What is Spyro? Dragon. Dragonfly. Yes. Well done. Hang on. He was a dragon who flew and his name was Dragonfly. It's Enter the Dragonfly is the name of the game. Okay. All right. It must contain the name of a turn-based artillery game involving projectile weapons that was first released in 1995. Right, this one's worms, but war war pigs, pigs of war. Do you remember that game? God, that was so good. 
No. What was that called? I'm going to Google no, that. I've never played that. Hogs of War. It was called Hogs, Hogs. of War. Oh, my <laughs> God. That, that game was so good. I enjoyed that game. It was like worms, but with pigs. <laughs> Some people might come at me that worms aren't actually insects, and I am aware of that. <laughs> but uh, for the purpose of this game, we're going to call them insects. I love that you think that someone's going to come at you for that. <laughs> I mean, I understand on the internet these days it could be anything, but that, really? I think you'll find the worm is not an insect. <laughs> uh, it must contain the term given to a glitch in a video game. Huh? It's a glitch in the video. You've already said this word out loud in this game. Oh, a bug. Oh, you mean like a software bug? A bug? Okay. Yeah. It was the it was the glitch in a video game thing that that threw me. I thought you were looking for like you know a Stargate portal or something like. That. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, oh, hang on, right? So it's roach, firefly, dragonfly, yep. worm, yep. bug, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness! You know, despite the randomness that doesn't exist there, pretty long password like yeah pretty strong you try and find as many insect related references in video games as i have when i give advice on how to create like a an account password for one password and you want it to be long and memorable and quite random and that type of thing i usually do tell people go and like find your like find some favorite things create a phrase mess it all about and then like you know tweak it until you can remember it but it's it's long and it's a phrase and and all this kind of stuff we've got some great blog posts on creating them but like when i do this type of thing the one thing that i always do and i've changed my account password several times over the years and i always kind of do something like this where i create a bunch of stuff and then mix it all about (laughs) i always get it in the wrong order you know, if, if this was your password, having like, you know, Firefly, Dragonfly, all of these types of things, I would just put them in the wrong order consistently. It's not how you organise your Spotify playlist then, Matt, with secondary, tertiary. <laughs> Are you laughing about my, my Spotify playlist? Like I used yeah. to go January, February, March, but then I realised I don't remember what I listened to in January in order to find the playlist that I want. So I started just going primary, secondary, tertiary. I think that works a lot better. I know what kind of mood I'm in. I'm in a one, two or three mood. That's how my Spotify goes. See, just apply that to passwords and you're done. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, (laughs) password one, two, three is a terrible password, though. That's the problem. (laughs) So I think with that, we're all good. Yes. That's what I say at the end of a meeting. But actually, we end the podcast in a different way. Uh, So love you, bye. Love you, bye. Bye.